Hi, you're listening to another message from Sunny Hill Church. Our prayer is that these messages encourage, empower, edify, and equip you to live for Christ in 2023. Be blessed as you listen in. We are continuing with our Acts series uh, today. We had a little hiatus over the summer period where we did some other things, which was great. But we're jumping back into Acts, and we find ourselves today in Acts chapter 5. So if you've got your scriptures, uh, just open them up where you are. Acts chapter 5. Now, let me just give you a summary as to what's happened up to this point, because it's kind of important to set the context for today's passage, okay? At this point, Pentecost has happened, the Holy Spirit has come. As Jake said at the start, we are a Pentecostal church, believe it or not, which means that we believe in the gifts of the Spirit, we believe in the fivefold ministry of the apostle, prophet, pastor, teacher, and evangelist, and we believe that God still speaks and works today. We believe that, okay? So the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, fills the church, and possessions in the church are shared, preaches are preached unbelievable miracles occur, the church grows exponentially, and inevitable persecution plays out. Still, there's a sense of excitement and momentum. And we arrive at Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Read with me. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. I believe it is going to come on the screen. This is Acts chapter 4, verse 32. With great power... The apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and much grace, everyone say grace, was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, who, Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and bought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So just to summarize, I have got some underlining words here, which hopefully on the next slide you'll see. What we learn from the church in this moment is that they were one in heart. They were one in mind. They shared everything. There was great power. There was much grace. There were no needy persons. And money was a servant, not a master. Everybody say, money was a servant, not a master. Then we slam into chapter 5, and I'm not going to lie. It's a difficult passage. It's a really difficult passage. It's possibly the most concerning passage in the whole of the New Testament. Uh, Maybe you think there's another one. But for me, I think this is one of the most challenging passages in the New Testament. Now, the good thing is when we are working through the Scriptures systematically, like working through the book of Acts, it means that as a preacher, sometimes maybe our inclination is to want to jump the difficult bit and get back to the exciting stuff. But actually, we want to make sure that at Sunny Hill we're preaching the whole counsel of God. And we believe that there's something powerful in this passage that will either challenge us, put the fear of God in us, literally, or at least make us think. Before we jump into it, I just want to share a little story from our household this week. Um, Over the last nine months, uh, for those of you who have been to our house, our small groups know this, that our boiler has been making a terrifying noise. 
You know, some of you have been there when you go to the toilet, you flush it, or you turn on a tap to wash your hands. And um, I can only equate it to that Home Alone scene. You know, when Kevin McAllister goes into the basement and the boiler's like, it, it's certainly like that. You flush the toilet and it almost feels like the whole house is vibrating. There's this sound. And um, typically I'm good at DIY. The problem is it just takes me a little time to get round to jobs. And so for the last nine months, it's been getting worse, and our home group can testify that it is kind of a concerning noise. And it's horrible at night, because if someone in our household uses the toilet, there's this horrible <clears throat> that happens in the, in the house. It's an absolutely horrible noise. But for the last few months, we've just been saying, right, we need to get a gas-registered engineer in to deal with this boiler, and we know the fix is not going to be cheap. We know it's going to be incredibly expensive, and so as a godly man of the household, I just delayed that process because I have the ability, I learned as a father, to be able to switch off from annoying noises. <laughs> I learned God, by his grace, had given me a skill, like the kids can say, dad, 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 and somehow I can just zone out into my own world, and even my kids have learned that some way, sometimes they have to circumvent the fatherhood, and they go, Dominic, and I'm like, yeah, what do you want, okay, and uh, so I have learned the ability to be able to zone out certain, certain noises, and this was one of them, but my wife doesn't have the same grace on her life, she hears everything, and she'll go, oh, it's so frustrating. And I'll be like, what's frustrating? She's like, the noise! As the walls are kind of softly vibrating. And so anyways, I finally find a plumber. Pure heat, shout out. I don't know if I'm allowed to do that. But uh, that's who we rang. A kind of well-established plumber. I mean, he's the real deal. The name's on the van and everything, right? This isn't one of those kind of Mickey Mouse kind of teams. This is like a serious plumber. And... Um, Fortunately, I was at work, so Louise had to deal with him. And uh, she says, listen, we've got a problem with our boiler. And he comes into our house and puts his arms on the sink like this. And for 10 minutes, just listens and looks. 10 minutes, right? About 10 minutes. He just puts the tap on. And he's just watching it like this, is what Louise tells me. And then he says... It's your tap. And he puts his hands on the hot and cold, and the noise stops. Nine months. <laughs> he puts his hands either side of them, just stops the vibration of the tap. It's your tap. He resolved it within about eight minutes. He didn't even invoice me for the job. He was probably too embarrassed on my behalf to put that one through. You know, because often plumbers can go, oh, that's going to cost a lot of money. You just said, it's your tap. Now, I'll come back to that and to why that's pertinent in a little while. But I want to look at Acts chapter 5, and I'm going to read it. And my prayer is just that you come with an open heart to this passage, because it is a challenging read. But I'm going to ask some questions that maybe you're asking about this passage, and I'm going to try my best to answer them, although I don't think I can give black and white, nice compartmentalized answers, okay? So Acts chapter 5, verse 1 to 11, listen to this. Now a man named Ananias, the context is a flourishing, thriving church. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife, Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. 
Now remember that we read at the end of Acts chapter 4 that Barnabas, who had been renamed by the apostles to mean son of encouragement, had sold one of his fields and bought all of the entirety of the, the, the monetary return from that sale to the apostles' feet. And now we read that Ananias and Sapphira also sold a piece of property. Verse 2. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but bought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Verse 3, then Peter said, Ananias, Peter, one of the early leaders in the church. Peter says, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Verse 4, this verse is important. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. You see why this morning's message is called Killer Church. Okay? Ananias fell down and died. And great fear seized all who had heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in. I just imagine she's a bit late for church, doing her hair, putting on her makeup, right? Coming in. If that was sexist, I apologize. <laughs> Only a little bit, though, because it's funny. Not knowing what had happened, Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her, husband, her beside her husband. Great fear. Everybody say fear. Great fear seized the whole church. Now, interestingly, this is the first time in the book of Acts, in the Bible, where the people of God are referred to as the church. Okay? And it says that collection, that ecclesia, that called out group of people were seized with fear and all who had heard about these events. So it's a crazy story, isn't it? It's a crazy moment in church history. I don't know whether you've ever heard a preach on this, but just to let you know, we're going to be doing the offering at the end of the service <laughs> this morning because we want to make sure you hear the preach first, okay? But it's kind of interesting because last week, Emmy texted me saying, oh, um, you know, as often is the case when we are uh, preaching, we want to know what are you preaching on so that we can select songs that are appropriate. She says, Don, what are you preaching on next Sunday? And I kind of sent an awkward emoji. And I said, Acts 5, 1 to 11. And I said, do you have a song that goes, the Lord killed me because I told a porky? <laughs> you know, or I lied and then I died. In fact, this message was almost going to be called, they lied, they died. Okay. Now, we obviously need to do some work because just in isolation, this passage could cause some great concern and maybe some confusion. Now, let me just remind you, Barnabas came, who had wealth, sold property, a field, and gave the entirety to the apostles' feet of that sale of that one field. We don't give, get the impression that he sold everything he owned, 
But he was a wealthy man, and he obviously had some extra land that he was able to kind of uh, liquefy, make some money, and give to the early church. Now, my hunch as I'm reading this passage in Acts chapter 5 is maybe Ananias and Sapphira see that Barnabas gives this gift, and they like the accolade and maybe the credit that he's getting. Like maybe people are going, oh, Barnabas, man, he's such a blessing. Oh, Barnabas, man, what an encouragement. I mean, they even change his name to Barnabas because he has such an impact into the church. And I just suspect that maybe Ananias and Sapphira wanted some of that action. That maybe they wanted some accolade. Maybe they wanted some credit. Maybe they wanted people to say, oh, my gosh, you guys are so generous. You know, it really is a good thing to be generous. The scripture says that the world of the generous gets bigger and bigger. It's one of my favorite scriptures in the whole of the Bible. The world of the generous gets bigger and bigger. In other words, your prospects open up. So when you're feeling like you're in a hard place, when you're feeling like you are limited with regards to your reserves, the worst thing you can do is close your fists and hold on to what you have. Spiritually, tactically, the best thing you can do is open your hands, increase your generosity. Why? Because the scriptures are quite clear in multiple places, Old Testament and New, that when you bring your offering and when you give generously, not to the house of God, but to the people of God and those who are need in the world, that actually your world gets bigger. And I want to live in a bigger place. I'm not just talking about my home. I'm talking about my outlook. I'm talking about my spirit. I want to live in a bigger reality. I want to raise big, godly children. I want to have a big, godly marriage. I want to have big, godly friendships. I want to know a big measure of grace upon my life. And I believe the key to the bigness in God, or one of the keys, is to be generous in spirit. It's bigger than finances. To be generous in your encouragement, generous in your word, generous in your attitude, generous in your demeanor. I think sometimes in the church, not this church, just the church, there's a poverty spirit. There's a tight-fisted mentality that causes us to grip onto what we have. And when we do that, we fail to understand the economy of heaven, that as we hold on to what we have, God is unable to multiply what we have. But as we come and open our hands... And bring our offering, God is able to multiply beyond our kind of wildest dreams. But it's bigger than finance. Now, let me just say, I do not believe that Ananias and Sapphira, this moment played out, because I don't believe it was because Ananias and Sapphira held some back. I need to say that. Because if you look in verse 4, read verse 4 with me. Peter says, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? In other words, it was yours to decide what you did with it. And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? As in, you could determine and decide what you were going to do with it. What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not just lied to human beings, but to God. So what we see is that it wasn't the fact that they kept some back. It was the fact that they wanted the appearance of giving everything. Are you understanding what I'm saying? There's an integrity issue playing out here. That they wanted the accolade of bringing everything, but they wanted the benefit of keeping something. We read uh, in 2 Timothy 3.1.5, you don't need to go there, but I'll just summarize it. Paul says to Timothy, he says, in the last days, like these days, listen, this is so pertinent to the time in which we live, people will be lovers of themselves. Do you know anyone who loves themselves? 
I do. <laughs> Did someone just say Jake? I'm sure someone just said Jake. It was Sophie. <laughs> Sorry, you were talking to him. Jake, I was like, is that the Lord? Lord, are you doing something? Okay, get a body bag. Okay. They'll be lovers of themselves. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Lovers of money. Boastful. Proud. Ungrateful. Unholy. What does that mean? Is that they are just familiar and flippant in life. Blaspheming the name of God. People, treating people wrongly. It says they will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Is that not just a perfectly kind of a perfect summary and assessment of modern day society? Do, do you not see that? People who love themselves. Uh, the other day, um, I went to the beach with the kids after school, and there were two ladies there who obviously went to a really fancy place in Lower Park Zone for some coffee and some glass thing, and they were pumping up this paddleboard for about 30 minutes, right? And literally, I just watched them a couple of times, and they just had their phone out, right? And they were like, had a coffee, and the one in the background pumping up the board, right? That for about half an hour, they were staging a picture, right? They weren't in the moment. They weren't playing on the paddleboard. They were literally trying to just, oh, look, we've got this fancy coffee on this nice beach, and my friend, well, we're about to have a wild, adventurous afternoon. And everyone who sees that post that afternoon is going to think, oh, they really know how to live life to the full. They're always having adventures. They're always having fun. What I saw is they put the paddleboard in the water for about five minutes and then took it out and took it down and went home. Because their whole adventure out was to try and get the impression of the best day out ever. But in reality, it wasn't the case. People who are lovers of themselves, boastful, proud. I'm not trying to, I mean, if you're here this morning and that was you, I apologize, okay? Um, but, but like lovers of pleasure rather than lovers, lovers of God. And this is the important bit in 2 Timothy 3 verse 5. They will have a form of godliness, but deny its power. If you are reading that scripture, just for a minute, 2 Timothy 3, verse 5, just to underline power. They will have a form of godliness, but deny its power. In other words, some people may look godly, but it won't be backed up with power. Why? Because they are frauds. It's false. It's purely cosmetic. Imagine at my house, I buy the shell of a Ferrari and I park it on my drive. And my neighbors go, oh, Oh, he's got, I don't know, that church pays so well. Look at that car on the drive. I mean, I imagine the shell is still quite expensive, to be honest. I'm guessing it's more than 80 quid anyways, okay? That there's a, 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 a shell of a Ferrari on the drive, but I never drive it and I never open the bonnet because I don't want you to see that it's got a 1.2 Vauxhall Corsa engine <laughs> under the bonnet because there's a disparity between what I'm presenting and what is to be real. We actually call that word hypocrisy. And that's a word that we actually get from the New Testament, hypocrisy. Our English word hypocrite actually comes from the Greek word hypocrite. But instead of the C in the middle, it's a K in the middle. And let me tell you what this word was literally used to represent in ancient Greece. It was used to represent an actor. So instead of saying Tom Cruise is an actor, they didn't have Tom Cruise back then, but they're equivalent, okay? Like Top Arrow rather than Top Gun maybe, right? <laughs> you know, you know they, they would go, Tom Cruise is a brilliant hypocrite. 
Like that, that's how they would use it. It would be used to explain what an actor does. In other words, they come out on stage and they pretend to be something they're not. In fact, they would wear masks like this. This is a mask from ancient Greece. Looks a bit like Jake, doesn't it? Right? <laughs> Just less ginger. But like, you know, if, imagine they wear big clay head masks like this. And the idea was that these were hypocrites and they would come out and they would be a hypocrite. And it would be celebrated because they were so good at playing a part. So good at pretending to be legit when they weren't. Like, but it was all a show and obviously no one was offended by that because that's the whole point of a hypocrite. They are actors. In fact, the origin of the word hypocrite comes from the word pretender. That they are pretending to be something they're not. We see this in Matthew 23 when Jesus uses this word to explain the religious leaders of that day, the Pharisees. He calls them hypocrites. Listen to this. Verse 23, verses 1 to 3 says this. Now Jesus turned to address his disciples along with the crowd that had gathered with them. The religious scholars and Pharisees, he says, are competent teachers in God's law, so they're able to teach. He says, you won't go wrong in following their teachings on Moses, but be careful about following them. They talk a good line, but they don't live it. They don't take it into their hearts and live it out in their behavior. It's all, this is from the message, it's all spit and polish veneer. That was Jesus' scathing words to the religious leaders of the day. Like, do as they say, not as they do. In verse chapter 5 in the NIV, it says, everything they do is for show. Everything they do is for show. They are complete fakes. On their arms, they wear extra-wide prayer boxes with scripture verses inside, which was something that the religious leaders used to do. And they used to wear a big one so that it would, like, we are the real deal. We are the important people around here. And they wear robes with extra-long tassels. Verse 6, and they love to sit at the head of a table at banquets and in the seats of honor in the synagogues. They love to receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi. And essentially, what I'm proposing to you is, this is what Ananias and Sapphira are guilty of. Not keeping back some of the money, but the appearance of being selflessly generous, but in reality being self-serving and deceitful. Are you tracking with me so far? Okay, because it's important that you are, otherwise I'm just waffling to myself, okay? The problem wasn't that they kept some money back, it was theirs to keep back. The problem was is that they were being pretenders. They were being hypocrites and deceitful. And to be honest, I read this passage and like I'm trying to understand, like this passage seems out of place in the New Testament because the New Testament is a lot more cheery generally. The, the, the backdrop of the New Testament is grace and mercy that God is good and in Christ we are forgiven, hallelujah and amen. But this passage reads like something you'd see in Judges or something, like in Joshua 7, the story of Achan who disobeys God, you know, or in Numbers 32, like a brutal, terrifying, anxiety-inducing response from God makes more sense in the Old Testament, but more understandable because obviously God was more angry in the Old Testament, right? But then somewhere between the Old Testament and the New Testament, fortunately, God had a personality transplant. And his language got a bit more soft and fluffy. You know, in the Old Testament, you've got the Ten Commandments. And in the New Testament, we have some suggestions, you know. Just some ideas if you want to have a go. You know, try it out. If it works for you, great. If not, never mind. Who are? Who am I to judge? 
Like God almost shifts between the Old Testament and the New Testament because he's really peed off in the Old Testament, but he chills out a lot in the New Testament. Of course, that's a crock. God doesn't change. The scripture's so clear that God never changes. The God of the Old Testament is a God of holiness, justice, grace, judgment, kindness, compassion, wrath. And the same God who presides and rules over the Old Covenant is the same God who rules and presides over the New Covenant. And so you say, so why, why is it different for us then? Well, let me tell you, it's not God's personality that changes. It's your plight that changes. Let me explain. Jesus changes everything for you. Jesus literally changes everything for you. It's not that God is no longer a God of judgment and justice. But when you come to Christ as a sinner, the judgment and justice of God that is toward you is now shifted toward Christ. And Christ, as we've sung about this morning in the Creed, amazing song, Christ died on the cross for us. That's the whole point of the gospel. That the judgment and wrath that I was due got diverted towards Jesus because if you like, when I come to Christ, essentially what I'm doing is I'm hiding behind Jesus. I'm essentially saying, oh my gosh, I'm at the bottom of life itself. Or maybe some of us thinking like, Maybe we're not at the bottom, but we just think church is quite nice. Jesus seems quite cool. That's not it. The response is, I'm a sinner. I'm broken. I am far from God. And in my own strength, I cannot make it right. But thanks be to God that he sent an intermediate, a mediator, an intercessor, someone who stands between me and God. And as I come to Christ in faith, it's as though he stands before me and the wrath that was poured out on Jesus 2,000 years on the cross, 2,000 years ago was on the cross, was supposed to be coming toward me. So God doesn't have a character transplant. It's only in Christ now that I can walk in confidence, grace, and mercy, that I can have hope about my current predicament and my future predicament, that I can go, my destiny is secure because of what Jesus has done. It's a step of faith, amen? I'm believing by faith that Jesus' death and resurrection was enough for everything wrong I have ever done, I'm doing right now, and will ever do in the future. But it's important that we don't come to him as hypocrites, having the appearance of repentance, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Because it's only when you understand, man, I'm a crook, I am broken, I'm dysfunctional, I'm a waste of space, you know, I hurt people all the time, I hurt myself all the time, I grieve God all the time. What do I do with this weight of anxiety and, and despair and hopelessness that I feel like I'm carrying on my shoulders? Well, I come to God himself and I say, Jesus, I invite you into my heart, I invite you into my life. Jesus, would you take on yourself the sin that I have been carrying. And it's what we call the divine exchange. As I come and bring my sinfulness to Christ, Christ pours his righteousness onto me. That, 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 that Jesus, it, it's insane. I, I spend my whole life sinning and Jesus spends his whole life being righteous and we meet at the cross and Jesus says, give me your sin. 
And he says to me, take my righteousness. We call it righteousness imputed to me. That actually by faith I believe I'm righteous because I have knowledge that I am broken and sinful before my maker. Whew. And so we look at this. God's personality hasn't changed. It's our predicament that's changed. It's our plight that has changed. But God's personality has not. It's important that we understand that. God still hates sin. Do you hear me? He still hates sin. When you gossip, when you lie a little bit, just a little bit, when maybe you lust, or maybe you have an angry outburst, listen, God still hates sin. He still hates unrighteousness. He still hates injustice and wickedness. But you could say to me, and this is what I'm talking about, you could, this is the kind of question I would ask if I'm in your seat right now listening to me speak. Well, if the cross changes everything, why didn't the cross change the predicament for Ananias and Sapphira? It's a good question, isn't it? Thank you, I came up with it myself. It's a great line of inquiry because if you think about it, Jesus apparently shows mercy for greater crimes in the Gospels. Think about John 8. Jesus encounters a woman who is caught in the act of adultery. And the religious leaders are kind of pushing Jesus towards executing his law, which is if someone is caught in adultery, they should be stoned to death. Yet Jesus, just like he does with us, stands between the accusers and the woman. And in a beautiful way, he says, leave your life of sin and pours grace into her life. So we know that Jesus in my opinion, forgave greater sin in the Gospels. Even Zacchaeus in Luke 19, this chief tax collector who was stitching up his own people just for some money or whatever, Jesus again pours mercy and grace on him. So, this is where it gets interesting because some scholars, I've read a couple of commentaries this week, some scholars suggest that maybe Ananias and Sapphira weren't saved to begin with. I mean, it's possible, isn't it? It makes sense. Like, if the cross changes our plight, if God's judgment still comes through, then maybe the covering and redemptive work of the cross was not applicable to Ananias and Sapphira. And I was thinking, yeah, that's a, that's a good answer. Now, are you ready for my next question? My next question is this. But why would Ananias and Sapphira die, but Hitler live as long as he did? Do you get my question? So if it's just purely a case that they weren't Christians, so therefore God's judgment could just flow forth, then we have to put it into a bigger picture and go, well, apparently worse people get to keep on doing what they're doing. People trafficking children and all that stuff. Like, people are doing obscene stuff don't seem to be struck down or do that. I don't know. It's just a little lie, isn't it? I mean, we've all told one. Don't tell me you've never been guilty of hypocrisy. We're all hypocrites. Turn to the person next to you and say, hello, hypocrite. <laughs> and turn to the person on the other side of you and say, hello, you other hypocrite. I remember once at a wedding a few years ago, I was talking to this staunch atheist. And, and he, he, ha he was angry towards God, right? And I always find, and this is just a little tool for you, that actually sometimes just listening is a good thing. 
Don't feel like you have to always bring the answers because Christians like that can be super annoying, right? Just listen. What's really at the heart of their complaint? What's really at the heart of their grievance? And more often than not, they have been mistreated at some place in life and they struggle to see how can God be good in this? If this God is real and this God is good, why didn't he stop this? Just listen. And anyways, he said, to be honest, my issue is with the people that go to church. He, he grew up as a Catholic and obviously had been on the receiving end of something not great or had seen, been exposed to something that wasn't great. And he said, I'll never step foot in a church, he says, because it's full of hypocrites. And I said, dude, you should come. You'll fit right in. Don't pretend you're not a hypocrite. We're all hypocrites to varying degrees. Like on a day-to-day basis, I'm reminded of this as a dad. I say, don't say that. And then I say it. Don't do this. And then I do it. You know, limit your PlayStation time to 40 minutes. This is a bad example because I don't really play PlayStation. That's the truth. But it's like, don't play on the PlayStation for longer than 40 minutes. But then I have an hour of time playing FIFA or something. Doesn't happen so much. But watching football or watching sports channels or something like that could be guilty of that. But in some way, it's funny how marriage kind of makes you more aware of your hypocrisy. And raising children is another level of making you aware of hypocrisy. But maybe in your workplace, maybe in your relationships, even as a son or daughter, maybe you're aware of your hypocrisy. But like, this happened happened to Ananias and Sapphira and there was worse people around. So why did it happen? Okay, so this is the question that I'm going to answer. Are you ready? You've got got pen and paper ready, okay? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I have a suspicion and a hunch, but I can't offer it to you as like this sealed up conclusion about Acts chapter 5 placement in the New Testament. And Ben, maybe you better come up and start playing just to make this softer, okay? (laughs) This was a different dispensation. What do I mean by that? I mean, it was a different period of time. That does matter. The early church was fresh out of the gates. And the early church were impacting cities literally. They were getting in the underbelly of vast, significant trading cities. And the presence of the church, even if it was just a handful, was having a seismic impact into the transformation, not just of individuals, but of cities. They were, in many ways, overturning and overrunning the Roman Empire one city at a time, despite horrific persecution, which we'll talk about next week. And like, I'm thinking like, well... You know, the early church is going from strength to strength. Momentum is increasing. And yet this is the first sinful event that we see in the early church. And God deals with it quickly. Why? Okay, now, this is where I need to come back to. Having a form of godliness but denying its power. Have you ever wondered, be honest, about the power that was present in the early church? Have you ever wondered about it? Is it just me? You've wondered about it. And you've kind of gone, their shadows would go past people. They would send anointed handkerchiefs around and, you know, the dead were raised. Paul preached so long that someone fell out of a window and died. And I know some of you feel like you can relate. I get it. Paul rushes down and brings him back to life. Resurrection power in the church. Power in the church. 
And maybe it's just me, but then I go, Modern Church, Sunny Hill Church, UK Church. We see measures, we see moments, but we don't seem to walk in the same authority, yet we know God is still the same. His plans and purposes have not changed. His desire is that no one would perish. It's been the same since the beginning. Same God, same mission. So what about this power? Listen, sometimes we think the problem is with our hunger. Sometimes we think we're not powerful enough because we're not hungry enough. So get more hungry for God, you know. Just be more hungry. If I just am more hungry and I make myself more hungry and I say I'm more hungry, then I will be more hungry. And God's only response to me being hungry is to meet me and to use me and to empower me to fulfill this assignment on our life. Sometimes we think if we pray more, we'll be more powerful. If I spend one extra minute tomorrow, if I'm praying for 10 minutes tomorrow, but I do 11 minutes, there's going to be an extra percentage of power running through me for the day. Or maybe if I just work harder, like maybe if I just go onto the streets and just preach the name of Jesus or whatever, maybe, maybe there'll be more power that follows, right? What if I just try and cultivate more faith, blind faith? Oh, God is so good. God is powerful. God is going to heal this person. Bang, bang, bang. Listen, all of these things are incredible. We should be pursuing God's presence more. We should be striving to grow in faith. We should be trying to stir our hunger. We should be increasing our prayer. I'm not denying any of those things. But just listen to me for a moment, please. It's like me going like this. The noise is coming from the boiler. It must be the boiler. It has to be the boiler. The problem has to be the boiler. Then the sovereign plumber walks into my house, observes the system and says the problem's with the tap. And you're saying, what are you chatting about? Are you mental? Listen, the problem to power is not where you think it is. It's not desire. It's purity. The problem to power is not where you think it is. It's not desire. It's not appetite for it. It's purity. Listen to this. A purified church is a powerful church. Whether Ananias and Sapphira were Christians or not, God was trying to preserve the purity of the church. This was integral to all that God wanted to do in the early church. And it's what Jesus wants to do now. In the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes, Jesus says this, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And it doesn't mean this, blessed are those who are pure in heart, because one day they'll die and go to heaven. No, that's not what it means. Look at the original text. It says, blessed are the pure in heart, and God will become visible to them. Now, that connection between purity and impact, purity and presence, purity and power, The psalmist says this in Psalm 34, verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. James 5 says, the prayers of the righteous availeth much. In other words, the prayers of the righteous are powerful and effective. The key to power is not 
where you think it is. It's not in the boiler. It's not in doing more stuff. It's in purity. It's in becoming holy as he is holy, as it says in the epistle of John. It's being perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, as Jesus says. That's all I got to say about that. (laughs) It's where it's at. So maybe for some of you, repentance is your next step. To be honest, for all of us, repentance is always a good response. It's always a good next step. Repentance is coming into the presence of God and saying, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And it's having this godly sorrow and grief about your brokenness. God, I'm sorry. But it's not just an apology. It's a reorientation of your life. If I have been doing this or having this attitude or looking at this or saying that, Lord, I am sorry. I have fallen short of your glory. And you're in the grace of God. But actually, I'm now going to go a new path. I'm now going to walk a new way. Church, I want to encourage you today that Ananias and Sapphira... You know, just to maybe alleviate some of your concerns about taking up an offering in a moment in the last song. I said at the very opening of this series, in the introduction, I said there's three P's that we need to think about when we read the book of Acts. You may not remember them. Precedent, practices, principles. So you go, is this a practice that we need to keep doing? No, I don't think it is a practice that we want to try and replicate. We don't want to see people die at church on a Sunday. Well, I don't anyways, right? Is this a precedent? Well, no, it isn't because actually it is an anomaly from what we can see in the New Testament. So it's not a precedent. Is it a principle? Yes, it's a principle. We worship and serve a holy God, a righteous God who is without sin and who hates sin and will not look at sin, but dealt with sin 2,000 years years ago on the cross of Calvary and everyone who comes to Christ anyone who comes to Christ. Jesus no longer sees your sin. He sees Christ. But now in light of that forgiveness and mercy and grace, we choose not to just look the part, but actually under the bonnet be something different. No, instead, what we do is we, we acknowledge our brokenness because you cannot address what you are unwilling to acknowledge. We acknowledge our dysfunction before God. We acknowledge our brokenness before God. And let me tell you, God's grace comes rushing in. But it's a regular state where we need to be in repentance. But purity precedes power. Let's not be a church that has the appearance of godliness, but deny its power. Let's not be a church that has the the form of, of godliness, but deny its power. Let us not be followers of Christ and disciples and Christians who have a form of godliness but deny its power. Let's be the real deal. Integrity means whole and complete. This idea that what you see is what you get, and this is who I am. The alignment, really, of our physicality and our spiritual reality in Christ coming together, that is integrity.